Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia. And we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and reclaim your identity. Today our interviewer is Dr. Alon Tom, postdoctoral fellow at UCLA UYNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's a social and cultural historian of the Middle East and North Africa in modern times and of that region's Jewish community. His research interests broadly include urban history, social relations and identities, historical anthropology, culture, and politics. Inspired by his Egyptian Jewish heritage, his recent research examines the Jewish community in Egypt, its ties to the pre-state Jewish community in Palestine, and the history of the community's migration to and integration in the State of Israel since 1948. Dr. Tom was kind enough to run an Egyptian cafe for the American Sephardi Federation Institute of Jewish Experience. He will be joined today by two sisters, Gigi Winston and Colette Winston, who share his Egyptian heritage. Uh, I am Dr. Alon Tam. I am a historian of the uh, Middle East and its Jewish communities, especially the uh, Egyptian Jewish community, uh, to which I have my own family uh, connections to. My father's family is from uh, Cairo, Egypt. And I have a great pleasure to speak today to uh, uh, two sisters, Colette and uh, Gigi. So without further ado, Colette and Gigi, please, uh, please introduce yourselves. Okay, um, my name is Colette Winston. Uh, I live in McLean, Virginia. I was born in 1952 in Washington, D.C. Um, my background uh, in terms of a connection to Egypt is uh, my mother, Tina Jabez Winston, uh, was born in Cairo, Egypt in 19... 25, uh, November 15, 1925. And my grandmother, uh, Rochelle Jabez, who was also Rochelle Abdelas, uh, was born also in Cairo, Egypt. My profession is I'm an attorney, and I was with the U.S. Department of Justice and a couple of other agencies for a little over 40 years, and I recently retired in July. Thank you. Uh, Gigi. Yes, hi, I'm Gigi Winston. Behind me, you can see my, my mother on this side, my Aunt Mimi and my grandmother, Rachel, who we called Nona, which was an Italian name for grandmother. Uh, I currently am a real estate broker in the Washington, D.C. area. Great, great. So let's indeed like focus on your mother's and grandmother's uh, uh, side of, of the family. The name uh, Jabez can resonate with a lot of uh, listeners that, that know the, uh, the, that family uh, uh, name, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that background or that background of the uh, family? Uh, yes, um, our grandmother's name was Rachel Abdelas, and she got married very young to Victor Jabez. At a very young age, she founded Ecole Jabez, the one in Cairo. 
I think there is one in Alexandria, but it's not related. And uh, I sent in a photo of the whole school with the teachers, with my grandmother um, sitting in the front with her legs crossed and her uh, hand on her face, which was her very, very typical pose for her. And she was very proud of that school. She was involved in a charity called La Goutte du, uh, La Goutte de Lait, the mm -hmm. drop of milk. And uh, there uh, she gave a lot of money for kids to have milk and food in school during the day because they may not have been very well fed at home. Her school also was opened up to a lot of uh, children who didn't pay. Many times after school, she would bring many of them home and feed them and teach oh, them wow. some more and until their parents came to her home to pick them up. So she was very, very active and the school was very well regarded. And my, um, my mother and aunt went to the school, uh, Tina Jabes, my mother, and Mimi or Gemma Jabes, my aunt, when they turned about 16 or 17, they were teachers at the school. So they were, oh. they were teaching as well. And my mother got a degree in pedagogy. Uh, from L'Ecole Jabez. I think they taught French, they taught French literature, and my mother specialized in philosophy. Um, but she was fairly young, and then she came to the United States around 1948 mm -hmm. with her grandmother on the uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, crossing the Atlantic, and they came to the United States when my grandmother felt that the situation was too dangerous for Jews in Egypt. They lived across the street from the headquarters of the Muslim Brotherhood. And my grandmother was pretty concerned that the Jews may not be as welcomed anymore in Egypt as they had been. They had a wonderful life in Egypt. Right, right. Um, so let's talk about that life a little bit and then progress to how they came to the United States and then to your experiences uh, growing up. So yeah, so the Good Delay is, uh, is a really famous charity organization back, uh, back in Egypt. And the Ecole Jabez was very famous as, uh, as well. It was a pretty good school. So um, can you tell us like a little bit uh, about like the uh, family uh, background? Well, my grandmother founded the school. Um, she created the school and I think it was on Rue Mansour in Cairo. I mm. think that's the name of the street. And we do have a picture or two of the school itself. Uh, they lived in Garden City and my grandmother yes. had um, a teaching degree and mm. decided that there was a need for a school to help teach primarily Jewish children in French. Uh, there was also a British school. There were other schools that kids could go to. But um, she arranged with the, with the French government to send her teachers and books and the curriculum of France. And that's what they followed. So it was a French school primary emphasis on, on kids that were Jewish in Cairo and who spoke French at home. 
Right, and I do write a lot about that in my uh, in my own uh, in my own research. The, the the names and and the story that you are describing resonate with me uh, with me a lot. Most of the Jewish community in Egypt was some kind of middle class or upper uh, middle class. They uh, put a lot of emphasis on things like charity. First of all, in getting on in life. So living in places like uh, Garden City, which was a really rich suburb uh, in Cairo, was popular with uh, upper-class Jewish families, uh, and opening things like schools to sort of, uh, you know, extricate poor poor children from poverty and 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 give them education was a, you know a primary vehicle for social upward mobility so i'm very excited to be talking to descendants of the founders of uh, of Ecole Jabez. yeah my sister and i are very proud of my grandmother and my mother and my sure. aunt and and my uncle who ended up in brazil so we're, we're very proud of them i don't know if my sister has anything to add on, on that subject I don't remember as much of the background as my sister, but I do know that both um, my grandmother was a substitute teacher um, in Washington, D.C., and she would have a dinner a cocktail party where seven or eight people would come over when I was quite young, maybe six or seven, and everybody would be from a different country, Africa, Europe. It, it was just a melting pot, and she was very welcoming to everyone. And Sometimes we would, she had friends from Armenia, she had friends, it was just fascinating, the different cultures. And education was very emphasized when we were growing up. Um, my mother also, uh, on my, um, on the uh, this side, Tina, um, she ran a, she was a substitute teacher for a while in when we were going to school and she taught French. So uh, again, education was primary for them. Right. She taught what's called FLES. Um, it was before and after school French. And she also held French classes in our home and uh, for adults and then for teenagers. And when I was seven or eight, she made me attend the classes. And I had to do all the dictée with all the kids that were so much older than I was. They were 17 and I was only eight. And she would correct my papers. And every time I had the accent wrong, instead of accent aigu, accent grave, and I got the accent wrong, she'd circle it in red and take off a point in the margin. But she was very tough and she made me learn French from a very, very early age, not just speaking it, but the grammar and the writing. So right. they were all teachers. My grandmother taught French and Spanish. She didn't know Spanish. So she stayed one lesson ahead of the kids and she learned it enough to teach it to the next for the next lesson. So she taught uh, in DC public schools. Absolutely, you should be proud. And yes, I wrote that in my research uh, a lot that education was a primary vehicle for upward mobility. So uh, Jews, Jews in Egypt put a lot of emphasis on, uh, on education. That is absolutely, absolutely uh, true. So yeah, so let's, let, let, let's talk a little bit about your experiences growing up with that. As you said, Colette, so the family um, uh, immigrated from uh, Egypt to the United States around 1948, you said? Uh, 1947, 1948. 
40, 47, exactly right, yeah. right, right, where uh, circumstances because of uh, the wars, uh, Egypt-Israel uh, wars. Our grandfather, my grandmother's ex-husband, stayed in Egypt until the 1960s uh, with his new wife and his two children from his second marriage. So in 1960, we went to visit them. My sister was two and I was eight. And we spent a month in Cairo uh, visiting with our grandfather that we had just met for the first time. So he oh, stayed uh, back. <laughs> right, and my mother was, my mother and family were instrumental in bringing them over here because it was quite difficult to do. Right, they couldn't have done it without my mother. She brought them all over here and worked very, very hard to find my grandfather a job and find them an apartment and put their kids into schools. And one thing other than education, the work ethic was incredible. And just incre I've never seen such work ethic probably of anyone that I've met since. Absolutely, you need that. You, you need that to uh, found and, and run a school, right? Yes. <laughs> That's not... Right, true. <laughs> absolutely, it absolutely uh, makes, uh, makes right. sense. And for a woman in that era to found a school and be a professor and bring professors and books and curriculum from France was amazing because women didn't always do that. But we find that all the women we know from Egypt are very strong and um, they, know, they know their own mind and they know what they know and they're very very self-confident. This was women's liberation back back at the at that time. Women go out, going out to uh, to work, uh, right to uh, um, and to establish, reinforce their their own status in uh, in society. Many went into uh, education. It was totally that time. So you know, first wave feminist in actuality not in ideology actually going going on and 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 doing the thing right uh it was it was socially revolutionary ba uh, back then and i want to get back to that to your to your visit uh, to egypt to see your uh, grandfather in the uh, in the 60s but first i i want to understand like a little bit about like the background to that visit in the sense of where you told stories of the old country where uh, when you were growing up in, uh, in in D.C. Yes, I mean, my mother would often talk about Egypt and how they had a dressmaker that would make all their clothes and how if anybody imitated any of her outfits, she would immediately go to the dressmaker and have them make something else. <laughs> she wanted to be unique. And, and uh, she also tells a very funny story of when uh, she went on the beach in, in Egypt, and I think it was probably Alexandria, and she wore a bikini, which at the time was not legal. And so she brought a scarf to cover her belly, um, and, but she didn't wear the scarf. And then the police came and said to her, you know, Madame, you, you cannot be, you know, dressed like that in public. And so she quickly put the scarf and the minute the police left, she took the scarf off. So <laughs> she tells us stories like that. And, and when I was a little girl, she would, she would never let us walk barefoot in the house. And I couldn't understand why, because it was so much more comfortable to be barefoot. 
So when we went to Egypt in 1960 and I was eight years old, I, I noticed that the Arabs in the street were all barefoot and I was incensed because I, I was so mad at my mother at the time. I said, how could you not let us walk barefoot when all the kids play outside in the street in your country barefoot? Well, she didn't have a really good answer for me. But she says, well, in my house, you do what I tell you to do and you follow my rules. So pretty much that was the answer. But I, rem I just remember thinking that it wasn't fair. And that was probably the beginning of my legal career because here I was comparing, <laughs> comparing the situation I had at home with the situation that my mother grew up in. And I, I felt there was a fairness issue. <laughs> right. But yeah, but, you know, the, the, the story of clothing in the beach, you know, talking about, uh, you know, women's liberation. She would tell us stories about how she went on by bike to the pyramids and mm -hmm. she went on picnics and she went to Corfu every summer because her grandparents, uh, one set of her grandparents had come from there and all the travels and it was just a very rich life. She told us about Gropi. She told us about Mena House. Um, she told us about the foods. She said she used to stop in the street to have some fool in a little pita bread with tahina. And they often would give her that in school as well. So she, she shared her life completely with us. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about Gropi? Well, Gropi, she said, was just a wonderful place and that they would go and meet their friends there. And we have a picture of my aunt and her around a table full of people having drinks and coffee. And they just led a wonderful life. They were very happy and, uh, and they enjoyed life and they enjoyed their friends. And friends were very important to my mother. And she kept many, many friends from Egypt and kept in touch when they all came to America. She was in touch with the ones in New Jersey and the one in Canada, some in Florida, and, uh, and friends were very important to her. The friends she made as a child um, would be her friends for her entire life, and she was exactly right. Were they all Jewish friends or also like Muslim and uh, or Christian or Copts or? They were all Jewish. Um, some of them were, were Lebanese or Algerian or Moroccan or Syrian from different parts of North Africa, but they oh. all ended up coming to Egypt. One set of my mother's grandparents, one was born in Egypt, one was born in Livorno in Italy. The other set of my mother's grandparents came from Corfu. So she spoke Greek to one set of grandparents, Italian to another set, French with her parents, Arabic with the help at home, her ser the servants, English because she had to learn it in school. And it, her culture was very rich. And the, her friends were primarily Jewish from Egypt, from her, her childhood, from school, from Ecole Jabez. That really likes, that speaks to so many things. That speaks to the historical reality that the uh, Jewish community in Egypt was a community of immigrants from all around the Middle East and, and the, the Mediterranean. So that made for that kind of very rich, very diverse, very mix and match and match culture 
uh, which you know only lives on in in the memory of of you you know of children's and 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 grandchildren's because it's gone and my uh, sister has a funny story about lunch our lunch boxes in school did you want to talk about that Jill? yes please sure i was busy trying to find a picture of my mother in her bathing suit um <laughs> you would enjoy it in egypt um but yes we uh we used to have in our lunch box often boreka which were um like barek i think with dough and they either had cheese in it cheese barreca or meat and cannoli pine nuts we always had a mix of italian in our food as well. Um, so the kids and other things we would have, for instance, um, my mother made pisti, which was a cake that had honey or sugar in it. Colette can say more to that. Things like that, that um, other people didn't have or kebeba, which is keba. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we would bring these things, especially the barica to lunch because they're, they're very self-contained things you can eat at lunch four hours later. Everybody would want it have it you know if they tasted it they wanted us to you know share or get trade with them so we were a little bit different and a lot different in our food it was funny how my mother melded into the american values of you know uh or somehow we were she made us lunch every day she cooked even though she worked um we, we really grew up in in a very comprehensive way i think but um a lot of times the food wasn't was people didn't know what we were eating. We thought it was just normal to eat this type of food, so. And then when we went to our friend's house, they got peanut butter and jelly. And we didn't, we never tasted peanut butter and jelly. And we never had white bread. And so for us, peanut butter and jelly on white bread, that was a delicacy. That's just something we, we just didn't have at the house. And we didn't have soft drinks like Coca-Cola or, we didn't eat the same way, we, we ate, a lot of Italian food. We ate a meatloaf she made with the hard-boiled egg inside. She called it polpettone. She was a great cook, and, uh, and she made a lot of interesting dishes and um, a lot of fool. Every week or so, they would have fool. And um, and my fa our father from Alabama, uh, he had never he didn't know what fool was, but he loved it. So he he enjoyed the cooking as well. We had a real, real melting pot of um, of cultures, food-wise. We would be eating also buco or beef bourguignon or amazing pasta dishes, and we'd be kind of saying, well, can't, "Can't we go to McDonald's?" And my mother would kind of cringe, I'm sure, like, "Why?" Or can we eat a TV dinner? <laughs> and uh, once in a while, she would let us, but we didn't know what we had. Yeah, so. TV dinners were was a highlight of our lives when we were kids. <laughs> But we had such gourmet food, we were totally spoiled. You were totally spoiled, and you didn't know how, how much you were spoiled for, uh, for food, right? Right. Uh, I understand that you have like a cookbook uh, or cookbooks from your mother, grandmother? Yes, from my grandmother. When, when my grandmother was pretty ill and she was in her mm. early 80s, uh, she said to me, what, you know, what can I leave you? What, what would remind you of me? And I said, you could give me a cookbook, give me a few recipes, especially pisti, which is my favorite, and burika and um, basbuza. I loved everything she made. And she made wonderful baked macaroni, just phenomenal. And uh, she said, okay. And I thought she'd give me three or four recipes. Well, she wrote out a cookbook by hand of about 80 pages with a table of contents 
partly in French, partly in English. And when I read it, it's just, she comes right back to me. And I made pisti and the smell of the pisti, I just had tears in my eyes. Food is like a carrier of memory, uh, of people, of social time, of culture, everything. You really were, were, were lucky to have that, that rich culture, rich not, not, not just like in sense of an, of an extent, but uh, rich as a diversity in that like single culture. Uh, which is very um, emblematic of, uh, of the Jewish community in, uh, in Egypt to have that also in, uh, in, in, in the United States. And, and you were talking a little bit about how different that was from, um, from the other kids in school. So were you the uh, only um, Jewish Egyptian or, or um, you know, Mizrahi uh, kids at school at, at, at your yes. friend group or no we were we were the only ones and it didn't bother me too much to be different um, my mother came to school around fourth grade and she brought the little pyramids that were on our our table we had an Egyptian table and it had little mm. little pyramids and sphinx and a camel and a few little objects from Egypt that were metal you know gold brass metal brass I guess and uh and there's my mother and Gigi's background and great picture great and picture, so she yeah. came to school to my elementary school and she gave a talk on Egypt and just a few weeks ago I had a reunion of my elementary school and two or three people came up to me separately and said I remember your mother and I remember when she came to our school and gave us a talk about Egypt And we thought it was the coolest thing that your family was from Egypt and that she was from Egypt. And it was so exotic and unusual. And here they are almost 70 years old. And wow. they remember the talk that my mother gave one day in elementary school in the fourth, and fifth, fourth or fifth grade. So she left a big impression. And we liked being different. Um, I, I liked being different, but... Um, I mean, certain times I didn't like being different, but, but I did appreciate it even then to some extent. Right. The times that you didn't like were, were when you wanted the uh, peanut butter and jelly. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Or if I was embarrassed. Or the McDonald's. Right. And my sister would bring home friends and she would tell my mother, don't speak to me in French. My friends don't speak French. Speak to me in English. We got in trouble with in French sometimes. And uh, we would hear words like yalla, like to come on, yalla, you know, mixed in different words from Egypt, French, Italian. It was a big me melting pot. Yeah. One, thing, one thing about being different, in, like I said, we just didn't know what we had because we were young, but um, we, we, had, we had a really rich life growing up. When we sat around the table for dinner, you talk about food. There was talk of politics, of what was going on in the world, of philosophy, not, uh, and it was kind of insisted that we didn't just watch TV or didn't just um, eat separately and go. It was, it was definitely a thing we did every night, no matter what. We got together for dinner and we had, they had people over and it was always very cultural and interesting. So, and uh, this is the picture, one of the pictures of my mother. We have an, an even more 
I don't know what to call it. We have another one where she's wearing gladiator sandals on the beaches of Egypt. And um, she, she was very ahead of her time. Oh, this is very, very interesting. So that, that kind of, uh, you know, a comprehensive ed education, uh, was that something that you uh, feel was shared with other kids in, in, your, in, in your school? I think it was probably unique. Our dinner table was always very lively and, and we often had several conversations going at once and we could follow them all. And if we brought any of our friends over, They, they were, you know, confused. They, they didn't know who to listen to. And they weren't used to having so many people having conversations at the same time. Uh, so that was one thing that kind of stood out in my memory. And another thing is my mother was very big on table manners. You had to hold your fork a certain way and your knife a certain way. And of course, you had to put your napkin on your lap. You know, you couldn't put your elbows on the table. And she had a whole series of rules. About a year ago, I met up with a friend of mine from childhood. And she says, I really wish I had thanked your mother because if it weren't for your mother, I wouldn't have good table manners. That this like resonates so much uh, with me because I, um, you know, I, I, I share that background, you know, acculturation, uh, um, cultural education. Uh, from my grandmother and my own uh, and my own family background and feeling royalty even though I was I grew up in a very uh, you know kind of like blue collar city in uh, in Israel but uh, still like I I had the distinct feeling you know going around like as a as a child feeling like an aristocrat but what you're saying uh, Colette and Gigi is uh, is something that very very interesting that this uh, this difference this uniqueness uh, you experienced as something positive uh, as uh, as children right uh, that your friends like actually looked up to you and remember that positively, right? The, the, the story that, that, that you uh, just told Colette. That's, that's not an obvious thing. You know, that's not an obvious uh, thing, especially when we are talking about, uh, and, and you know, there's like a lot of talk, well, in public, in, in public debate, but, but, but also in uh, scholarship, right? About experiences of, of immigrants. Differences uh, are usually talked about as, as uh, negative. Usually talked about, you know, second generations Im uh, immigrants are more focused about integrating and assimilating into the uh, host country, in this case, Ameri American country uh, uh, culture, right? Sure. I mean, one of the differences is we traveled a lot. And most people's idea of traveling was going from Washington, D.C. to Rehoboth Beach or Ocean City in Maryland or Delaware. But we went to Italy and Egypt and Israel and Switzerland and France. And, uh, and sometimes we come back and begin the school year, the teachers would ask us how we went, how we had our, what we did over the summer. So I would say, well, I went to Italy and I went to Egypt and they would want to hear about it and hear our experiences. And I just realized that the trips that we took were so much more exotic. And so much more interesting and different. You know, we also went to the beach a lot. 
I, I know I know that from my own family, this insistence of this travel loss. Only now in old age, I, I can appreciate and understand the investment that to, of resources that went in that into that travel, travel and, and culture where, where it wasn't like obvious, you know, financially to, uh, to do that. That's incredible. I, I, I love it. So this, this, all, all that background, all that different background, and so difference was, was positive for you, right? So how all, all this, you know, background, you know, um, shaped your um, life choices? Well, I think for me, um, I ended up going to Georgetown University as an undergraduate, uh, and I majored in French and minored in Italian. I also minored in English and philosophy, so I had three minors. And, um, and I think the languages, I love languages. And I think my love of languages started when I was eight years old, when I went for the first and last time to Egypt in 1960, where I learned how to count in Arabic. And I learned um, an Arabic song and I learned a few Arabic words. And I still remember that. And, um, and I just love languages. So that prompted me to study languages in college. But then my mother felt, well, you can't do a whole lot with languages, but teach. Maybe you should go to law school. So she really pushed me to go to law school. Um, and even though sometimes temperamentally, I thought I wasn't totally suited to being a lawyer, it gave me a career and a very interesting career. And um, ultimately, I worked in immigration law uh, for the U.S. Department of Justice and argued cases before the courts of appeals throughout the United States in immigration, asylum, and um, in different uh, immigration issues that come up in law. So it gave me confidence to argue a case before three judges in the federal courts of appeals around the United States. Uh, it gave me confidence in my other job at justice to present a trial uh, in trial court, in federal trial court. So I think that the, the push of education, um, my mother got a second job to be able to afford the high tuition, which then at the time was 3000 a year uh, at Georgetown in 1970. And she um, because of her second job, she helped, you know, pay for, for my tuition at Georgetown. And, you know, practicing immigration law is also, uh, you know, not, not unconnected to... Uh... Right. I will say that my parents both, especially a woman like my mother, showed us that you could do anything. They didn't label themselves as, I'm a teacher, I'm a clothing... Um, owner, a clothing store owner, or dress buyer, or real estate professional, or a number of things that they did, they just did it. And what it showed me is whatever I did, like if I didn't do real estate, I could pretty much do anything that I try. Um, as Colette kind of mentioned about my grandmother, she learned Spanish to teach the class. That was how it was. You just got in and did it and learned and adapted and worked it out. And I think that completely helped me right now uh, in my work, I can be completely creative. And uh, I was in advertising for a while, like my aunt, and I can think of, you know, somebody to call or something to do that no other realtor's thinking of, because I have that ability from my parents to think outside the box and not limit myself in any way, not in any way. Um, 
the other thing I'd like to mention as an aside is they always did this very fashionably. I have hundreds of pictures and in not one photo, they always um, looked, it wasn't a matter of trying to look good to be better than someone else. It was just always elegant, cultured. That's how they came off. And um, that's also served as well in our professions, I think. But, the, but mostly the confidence of being able to do whatever we, we want to do, whatever we decide to do, knowing that we can, and having the background and the foundation from them, that we can do whatever we try to do. Uh, or if we don't know how to do something, we can find out where and how to do it. The other thing is that we were around women and family that spoke their mind. If there was something they didn't agree with, they would tell you and lie, and, and you learn that way. Sometimes uh, it was too much. It wasn't an ounce of hypocrisy. If you know no whatever hypocrisy. my mother thought, you found out, you know, and you could always count on what she said as being her honest thought. Um, so she was very direct. And although sometimes it stung a little bit, I think we learned from it as well. But we we have friends tell I, I have a client who I met the other day for the first time who knew my mother when she was a young woman just starting work, and she would said she would go by my mother's clothing store on her way to the bank, which was a couple doors down. And it was funny. She told me that my mother said, I hope you're making a deposit instead of spending money. You know, she would always be willing to give somebody a good lesson, um, especially if they were younger. She treated everybody like they were her kids in that way. They were very kind to people and helpful. And that also is something that we take in our work, being very honest and kind. So was there like any point in your life that you decided to to reclaim your your uh heritage your jewish egyptian heritage well i think maybe twice i did um once uh, when i was at georgetown um, back in the 1970 to 1974 there were very few jews at georgetown being from egypt and my mother from egypt i always valued that um, but any kind of connection I could find from my mother, like um, Lucette Lanyado, um, who was with the Wall Street Journal and who wrote the famous book, A Man in a White Sharkskin Suit, she mm -hmm. came to speak um, at a bookstore uh, in D.C. called Politics and Prose. I arranged for that and my sister ended up taking her because I had to be in court that day. And so I tried to connect her with things that she loved that had Egyptian connections. So I guess through that, I, I became more appreciative. And so I'm sure my sister did too, to help her reinforce the things that she loved uh, from Egypt. I would only say that lately, now that more and more comes out about the Holocaust and about um, the suffering of Jews in Europe and, and all over, uh, I, I remember little tidbits of things that my parent, my mother and parents, my grandmother would say, for instance, that, you know, I think, I think it was some of the Australia, she was grateful for the Australians for protecting Egypt during that time, because she felt that uh, it would have been a lot worse in Egypt. And things like that start coming back to me. But it's interesting that they really, I don't know if they didn't want us to know about it or didn't want us to hear about the suffering, but they definitely did not complain or or share that suffering that they must have experienced or the or any anti-Semitism. They didn't really, um, we didn't really grow up 
almost in a bubble, didn't really understand it. So looking at it now, seeing so many things, it makes me just wonder what they did see. Why my grandmother had to felt that they had to leave Egypt when she said it was time, way before other people, her friends or peers were, were seeing that. And for that, I just say that they had such wisdom and foresight and I guess um, the non-complaining uh, acceptance of life, but you do what you have to do. Right. That, that's what um, strikes me about it now. That again resonates with me so much because um, yeah, my family didn't talk about, you know, the bad things. It was like, I'm now asking, you know, my father and, and his siblings, and they all tell me like that, that that's kind of like a family policy. Children should not know about, you know, bad things that this is not something that children should grow, uh, grow up uh, with. What's very interesting also like, and not very obvious as second generation uh, immigrants, the heritage, uh, right, that background was a thing that was always, you know, present in uh, in your life, and you did not, you know, feel the uh, uh, the need to, uh, you know, somehow uh, suppress that or put that put that aside. Uh, it's something that you have always carried uh, uh, carried with you. Uh, and didn't feel uh, you know the, a need to rediscover because you always had it, and that's not obvious as well. I must tell you that that's a wonderful thing that I appreciate about about your uh, your experience. Well, my, so how- my daughter wants to go to Egypt, and um, before my mother passed away in 2019, she took notes and she asked my mother, "Well, if I go to Egypt or we go to Egypt." where will we go? And she, my mother gave her all these names of places and streets and things to see and things to do. And so my grand, my, my daughter is planning a trip to Egypt when things settle down with the pandemic and, and things settle down a bit in the Middle East. Um, we were going to go in, in September, but we both, we all felt that it was just too, too difficult and too dangerous at this time but one day we will and my daughter will rediscover her roots how did you feel when when you went back to uh to egypt well i've only been there once in 1960 and i was eight years old so i never went back after that and my sister was two so she was even younger but um i remember the pyramids i remember being near a camel and find them finding them very dirty and um, I remember the sand. We went to Alexandria. I remember the beaches and how the water was very low for a long time. And we could just walk and walk and walk in the water without any big waves. And the color of the water was beautiful. And my mother always complained how the color of the Atlantic was so ugly compared to the Mediterranean. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I totally was, agree. Yeah. The Mediterranean is the best. It's yeah, the best. Absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I liked it as a child, but I, I saw it through a child's eyes wow. and um, mostly getting to know my grandfather and listening to Mustafa on the radio and uh, singing with Dalida, you know, on the, and oh, wow. learning, learning, you know, how to count and learning about different things. And then I had one experience where I was a bit of a tomboy at eight years old and I was I climbed a tree because Nasser was going to come in a parade. 
And um, I didn't know who Nasser was, but apparently he was some very famous person. And he was he was the head of Egypt at the time. He he went by in an open car. There were no nobody protecting him. And he looked up and saw me in a tree and he waved at me and I waved wow. back. And that was a really amazing moment because um, here I had seen Nasser in person and right. I knew he was very famous back when I was eight. And um, and I felt very special because he waved at me um, and the rest of the wow. crowd was below me but he waved up at up at me in the tree <laughs> that's so such a wonderful story right <laughs> little, little did you know but i didn't know anything about him <laughs> right 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 that's amazing i'm telling you like the first time i went back to egypt with my father i felt like homecoming more i i think more than he did i, I was struck because like he remembered you know the place uh how it was when they when when he left right and for him things changed but for me you know not having born or, or raised there but just like raised with the uh with the stories i i felt strongly like 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 homecoming even like even more than he did my mother went back with my father without us And my mother took a cab and wanted to see where her home was and the school. Mm-hmm. And, um, but all the street names had changed. So yes. she couldn't give the names of the street, but she told the cab driver here, turn left here, go a few more blocks, turn right here. And the cab driver was like, how do you know? How do you know where to go? And even though many decades had passed, she knew exactly how to get to her home and exactly how to get to her. Her, her mother's school and uh, she was able to show this to my father and uh, the street everything's had changed a lot but she was able to find her life when she returned if there's like something that you you know would tell your younger self or would tell uh, you know younger generation about Um, you know, Jewish identity, uh, Jewish heritage, particularly this specific one, um, if, what would it be, if anything? Um, I think for me, it would be appreciate your differences, appreciate who you are and appreciate where you came from and be respectful of the fact that your ancestors fought very hard for the kind of life you live now. And they came from far to come to this country and to create a life with nothing, with a suitcase in their hands. And uh, they left a lot of richness, not monetarily, but richness in culture and life and friends and places and connections. And they left so much behind and they started over. Uh, my grandmother was at that time probably... 40 years old and started her whole life over. And my mother was 19 and started a new life. And to, to kind of appreciate what people did for you, not to take things for granted. I will say that it's interesting. The Sephardic background of my mother apparently is very rare. And it's a little bit different from what I've heard, not to be repetitive, but it was very a lot of emphasis on education and culture mm-hmm. and open-mindedness. So I would say that what people may think of as a Jewish background 
there's more to it than meets the eye. There's just more to it. Absolutely. And, and I think this is what we're trying to do in this uh, podcast uh, series to bring these stories up into uh, and to a, a Jewish audience here in the United States that is mostly Ashkenazi. These stories, this history, uh, this uh, heritage of non-Ashkenazi uh, Jews is is a story worth telling, uh, and uh, and one that we can you know learn and and suddenly live by. My so father, that... my father was Ashkenazi. Not to interrupt, but I think a lot right. of people, a lot of people in America, didn't even believe that my mother was Jewish because she came from Egypt. And, and we had the benefit of having an Ashkenazi father and a Sephardic mother, which was totally amazing. Um, but people just didn't even understand that somebody could come from Egypt and be Jewish at all and right. speak and French. Jewish without speaking Yiddish. Right. Yeah. <laughs> my, my mother was once engaged to someone and, and his mother did not think that my mother was Jewish because she didn't speak Yiddish no. and because she came from Egypt. So how could she possibly be Jewish? Jewish. And um, and I too ran into that the boy I dated. The mother didn't think I was Jewish because I didn't know any Yiddish at all. And uh, wow! So it was it was different, but we still celebrated the Jewish holidays: Yom Kippur, um, Rosh Hashanah, Passover. Uh, we didn't always do the full seder. We just did the the questions and hide <laughs> the matzah, and then we started eating. So we weren't, <laughs> you know, weren't strictly religious, but my mother made sure more than my father. My mother made sure that the holidays were respected and that we would always get together for dinner and we would always be a family, no matter what we were doing in our lives. These are, you know, some of the most ancient, certainly older than the Ashkenazi uh the communities right in uh, in the world and the funny thing is that speaking specifically about Egypt Egypt was one of the only a handful of countries in the Middle East and around the uh, Mediterranean where there was an Ashkenazi uh, community within the largely Sephardic or Middle Eastern community in Egypt. About 10% of the Jewish community in Egypt was in fact Yiddish speaking Ashkenazi uh, uh, community. And, and they got along, you know, with the majority um, of, uh, of, Sephard of Sephardic Jews uh, there. So um, Absolutely, history is much more complicated than that. But that's but that's wonderful. That's so wonderful. That that would be like a good point to end on. This was an amazing ending. Such a strong ending after such great stories and discussions and bringing it all together. And thank you, alone specifically. But thank you also, Colette and Gigi. But thank, thank you for the opportunity. Um, oh. We both really appreciate the opportunity to be part of history. Thank you for listening. Reclaiming Identity is produced and edited by Moshe Singer and executive produced by Dalia Arusi and Drora Arusi. Our theme music is by Vanessa Paloma. Be sure to check her out on Spotify. Be a part of the reclamation. Subscribe to the Reclaiming Identity podcast on our website, 
instituteofjewishexperience.org on our Facebook page, Spotify, or Apple Music. Follow our programs on our website and the Institute of Jewish Experience channel on YouTube. And please help support these and other ASF Institute of Jewish Experience efforts by donating today. Moses.